Welcome to Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borohovich. In the last episode, I had the pleasure of getting to know Kira Clancy, CEO and founder of Beats Medical. I enjoyed learning about their startup journey, their ability to listen closely to patients and customers, and the channel strategy they employed going to market. In this episode, we now hop over from Dublin to London to finally hear a venture capital perspective on the digital therapeutics market. In order to do that, I was happy to reconnect with Will Gibbs, principal at Octopus Ventures, whose DTX portfolio includes Big Health and Quit Genius. But before we dive in, I was introduced to Will in January of 2020 as I joined my wife in building Your Coach Health. Will was very responsive, polite, thoughtful, and his deep thoughts exuded in a no BS way. And now we jump to my conversation with Will. I'm here with Will Gibbs, the principal at Octopus Ventures. And as always, the listeners of this podcast want to get to know you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Will, a little background, and of course, how you got into the investment space, and then I'll follow on with more. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. So I suppose we're probably like taking a step back, like pre-Octopus, I've always been keen on building stuff and learning, um, albeit fairly broad. So pre-Octopus, I had the pleasure of setting up and building a rare breed pig farm in Essex, in where I kind of grew up, then decided actually the way forward would be a career in medicine. And so very excited about combining interests in kind of exploration, ocean sailing with medicine, convinced myself of that until pretty much had a space lined up to go to med school and then backed out and decided, actually, I don't want to study for another five years. And so then in a fairly kind of random encounter, started finding out more about the investment slash kind of venture world. And so started about eight years ago, kind of day to day now work with about nine portfolio companies, run our healthcare team. And so whilst it may not have been a a straightforward transition from pig farming to investing in leading <laughs> European health businesses. I'd say that, yeah, as long as the learning bit and the building bit is there, then uh, I remain excited. So you were a self-made vet. No, I'm kidding. Um, that's a fascinating journey. And once you got to Octopus, and maybe let's just step back on Octopus uh, as an investment fund, what is that thesis from a stage? Because obviously many startups, especially in DTX space, I'm sure will be listening to this episode. So give us a little bit more about the fund itself. Yeah, so the team itself is broader than just health. So we are a kind of London headquartered fund, but with an office in New York as well. We invest about one to 200 million a year. So in terms of Europe, we're probably one of the most active investors. And then within the team, and we've got about 90 portfolio companies now, there's a number of specialist sub-teams. So looking only at health, we've got eight people, mixture of academics, commercial folks that have worked in some of the largest healthcare businesses in the world, clinicians. So we come at it from a fairly broad perspective and we'll look at everything from DTX, consumer health, to diagnostics, data, AI, biotech. And so I think our belief is that by going broad, there's an advantage to be had there. There's lots of very successful ones that we have a lot of respect for that only do biotech or only do consumer health, where we try and take a particular 
theme or clinical area, it's, it's hard to be too specific about where that's going to take you. And I think remaining broad is, has its advantages. And so as a team, we kind of focus mainly on kind of seed and series A companies. And then the portfolio is broad as well. So everything from kind of DTX, as we've talked about with big health, quick genius to businesses in the cell and gene therapy arena, like Ori Biotech. Uh, we're about to announce a round, hopefully, into a Israeli-based digital pathology business. And actually, I think that thesis or, or those themes broadly spoken have meant that we've co-invested alongside the likes of Kozler, Merck, Sanofi, and all the usual kind of health suspects. Awesome. Yeah. And, you know, just as a follow on, it's actually interesting to your point, what you said earlier, I mean, there's funds that are dedicated to specific, you know, verticals and even sub verticals. And there's funds like yourself that looking at everything from consumer to healthcare, et cetera. Maybe you can talk a little bit. I mean, I can see some huge benefits and especially as it relates to the DTX space, which we're going to dive deeper into. Any thoughts on kind of the benefits of being broad versus focused? Yeah, I'd say that some weeks I, I definitely wish we, we were more focused. Other weeks, you definitely feel the benefits of, of going broad. But I'd say that as a teams, we have specialist teams as well, looking after fintech, consumer, deep tech. And a lot of areas within health overlap with those areas. And so if I take something like consumer, like a lot of the time there when we're looking at investing in consumer businesses is spent obsessing over the product. And I think that's just as true for, for DTX, where the completion rates of a given course of therapy are pretty much linearly correlated with the quality of product. So I think product obsession is a great thing, and you can't get away from that looking at consumer. And equally, I think when we look at businesses in kind of deep tech, where it might be years from first product to first revenues or the importance of investing in IP or like really being well plugged in with strategics. There, there are other areas that our deep tech team kind of obsessed about, which is also very relevant for health. So I think it's an advantage that we definitely play when we're going in and, and investing in companies, but also post-investment. So something like Ori Biotech, which is a next generation cell and gene therapy manufacturing platform. A lot of what they do there involves microfluidics or robotics, and like really, like really exciting slash mega geeky territory, but being able to pull in our kind of robotics and deep techs folk to kind of give a non-medical but 100% robotics view is really useful because I think it's uh, naive to think that all of them kind of accelerate at the same rate. Well, you know, and it's interesting you brought up earlier, you know, Big Health or Quid Genius. I mean, while both companies are very much focused on the clinical research, I mean, we had actually Peter on this podcast earlier, and I've met him still as we were reminiscing on the show back in that dark room in London, right? But his obsession on that end consumer was actually what impressed me at the time. And I know I don't think you were directly involved with that deal, but maybe just, you know, from your colleagues, et cetera, that was your first investment into what I, for the listeners, I'm doing air quotes, DTX at the time, which wasn't even a really a term. So maybe you can talk a little bit about A, the decision, what attracted you guys to the company, but also to the space. Yeah. And, and I'd say that when we first invested in Big Health, which was back in 2016, 
I think DTX was probably, I'm not sure if it was even a term, and I think we were probably just as curious, uh, maybe also sceptical in some ways, as maybe broader clinicians and kind of health ecosystem folks were at that point. I think things have changed a lot between now and then. But I think realistically, our decision there to, to partner with Peter was largely based on him, that he has a both clinical and kind of product bias, which I think is classic for this space. I think also his more philosophical view of, and this is where the name big health comes from, as opposed to big pharma, of how can you actually increasingly treat conditions without using pharmaceuticals. I think that was a kind of a challenge of you that resonated with us. And and also, I think another key pillar of the strategy that he articulated was this is a medical business. This isn't a consumer health play. And his dedication to prioritizing randomized controlled trials, having a medical co-founder in Professor Colin uh, SB was also a sentiment that the fact that he was intent to build a global, huge health business rather than something that maybe wanted to, to, to create impact, but wouldn't have the kind of raw materials and, and credibility to pull it off. So I don't want to make us sound smarter than we were, but at that point, uh, like Peter was a big part of it, but, but so excited and so glad that we, that we partnered with Peter when we did. Now, again, remembering it was very energizing and convincing. And to your point, there was that conviction of treating without molecules, et cetera. So, you know, I think what I noticed also in doing a little bit more research than I normally do is that you guys also invested with Kaiser and actually co-led with Kaiser, which just, again, kudos, I think, as as a fund going into this new space, having that clinical co-lead was a smart move. You know, I, I don't know if there's any other thoughts from you, but just more of a kudos. So no, Liz and the team at Kaiser are great. And I suppose a few things to pull out there. One, that we see a lot of European health businesses where the US is a key part of the strategy. And I think for a lot of DTX businesses, the route to market is sometimes just as important as the quality of the product or kind of other components. And I think Livongo is testament to that. And I think with that in mind, like we're always conscious of how can we build syndicates that maybe cheat the system and enable the company to, to actually take some of those risks off the table. So when we were first investing in health, that was a kind of a UK company doing more and more in the US. And so I think bringing in folks like Kaiser are kind of helpful at bridging that gap. And we kind of have lots of conversations with portfolio companies about how to think about corporate venture capital funds. And I think within health, there's actually a really kind of impressive bunch of very specialist investors that are still financial investors. So you don't necessarily have some of the downsides of corporate money, but like an Optum or, or someone like that are one of the most active funds within health and probably held with high esteem kind of globally. So I think the CVC stuff is always like classic pub chat of like what are the strings attached to this? But I think with where like route to market is just so key, a lot of these folks, especially when they understand how the buyers think so well, especially when it comes down to ROI or kind of health economics, like they live, sleep and breathe this stuff. And so to have someone on your side of the table who won't 
bullshit you and will give you that view rather than just hearing it as a prospective customer, I think can be really valuable. So let's dive into, I think, your second investment in the DTX space, Quid Genius, right? And, you know, you can talk a little bit of the dynamics, but one of the things that I noticed, you guys decided to actually lead in that space. So you already had some of the learnings and comfort level and connectivity, but maybe step back on some of the decision-making processes that you guys made to invest in Quid Genius, and also secondarily talk about your leading role in that. Yes, I'll... Um happy to talk at length about Quid Genius. So this is a business that is very close to my heart. So at a high level, what they do, so they are a platform for substance addiction. And so their first product is focused on smoking cessation. So they sell to large US self-insured employers. They recently announced a big partnership with Express Scripts as well. So really like landing some impressive clients. Evernorth, don't forget, they changed their name. Sorry, renamed. <laughs> I'm renamed. kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> yes. actually, actually, I think quite interesting is an example of DTX more broadly, where actually like the customers for Quit Genius aren't kind of Google execs. They are folks that work in manufacturing or automotive or areas maybe where digital therapeutics adoption has perhaps been slower. So I think I found that exciting. But I would say that our, our process to invest was slightly different with Quit Genius in that one of our team had been trying to quit smoking for many years. And so our product diligence was largely, okay, Yusuf, and the quit, and the quit, <laughs> like, see if you can get her to quit. And if you can, then, then we'll be impressed. And they did. And so <laughs> that was a key part of our diligence. I think as we talked about it more as a team, realized that especially within DTX, there is the opportunity to back businesses that can scale at a growth rate that you'd probably see more commonly with consumer businesses, but with kind of valuation multiples more associated with SaaS businesses or B2B companies, like look at Novongo, Teladoc and how that business is valued or look at Hinge or stuff like that. So almost if you hit the company name and just looked at the numbers, you'd be like, oh, okay, this is a consumer business. Or if you hit the name and looked at the valuation multiples, you'd be like, okay, this is a, a SaaS business. So I suppose with an investor hat on, and quite an exciting and quite a unique category of businesses, whereas you also have the more emotive fun side as well of like opioid addiction, smoking addiction, alcoholism. There's a lot of interesting businesses playing in this space, but there is genuinely opportunity to build billion-dollar businesses uh, here, especially when, and this is very true for the Quit Genius team of a team with strong medical credentials. So the three founders, uh, clinicians themselves, and actually they had got the business to a point where the founders had hustled customers over the line. They got a small number of kind of RCTs in place or in progress. And then it was just a question of, look, we've got product superiority here. How do we scale this to become the category leader? which is hard not to be excited about. Awesome. And maybe just a quick comment on you guys, you know, as a lead, right? Because again, you've had some learnings and experiences with Big Health and co-leading with Kaiser and I'm sure, you know, the rest of the network. The decision to lead in that round specifically, you know, versus just invest and not be the lead? I would say that our, our starting position is typically to lead rounds or build syndicates with folks that make sense. And I think it's probably linked closer just to our conviction of actually 
there's some entrepreneurs that can look you in like white to the eyes and say, we have got the best technology in the market. We just need to scale it. And that's definitely true of the Quit Genius team. So they have, have zero regrets <laughs> at this point. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my journalistic partner on this podcast, Brian Dolan, who is the founder of Exits and Outcomes, and as I like to call him, the digital health detective. Let's see what question Brian has for our guest today. Okay, here's my question. One of your portfolio companies taught me a venture-backed startup concept that I've never heard of before. It's when a startup is quote-unquote orphaned by an investor. And this happens when an individual investor at a firm leaves the firm. And when they do that, they typically also leave their board seats as well. So if then that firm doesn't replace that investor on the board of the startup, or it does, but it replaces them with someone who's probably not as big of a believer in the startup as the original investor was, that can obviously be very detrimental to the startup. Can you help me understand how common this is and also how hurtful it can be to the startup and what you, as another one of this company's investors, might be able to do to help them in that kind of situation. Thanks, Brian. Uh, it's a good question, and uh, one that I'm sure founders probably talk about a lot between themselves. So I would say that it does happen. I wouldn't say it is very common in that typically the economics of how venture funds work mean that individuals commit to, to a fund or a team for 10 plus years. And if you look at Many of the good and the great in the venture world, that's probably more like 20 years within a team. And it is a long game, but it does happen. And I think when it does happen, there is an impact to just the continuity of the board, especially if it's been the same board that's been together and operating well for kind of five plus years, which often it is. But, but I wouldn't say the fallout from which is necessarily irreversible. I think it is clearly a transition period that has to be managed. I think... It is worth going eyes wide open if you are a startup raising money from a fund to really get a sense of, okay, do I have an individual champion here amongst a bunch of skeptics or actually is my business kind of well suited to the broader thesis and themes this investor invested? Because if it's the latter and there's broad support for what you're doing and you continue to maintain relationships with a number of folks within that given fund, that's clearly a better position to be in. So I think it is a risk and one that, that businesses should understand. But I think if is one as well that, that you can diligence to some extent. And I think it's always a good thing, something we try and proactively push for our founders to have multiple touch points within our team, rather than it just being a single kind of one-to-one -one relationship. I'll hop in here. I mean, obviously, you know, managing that board and board observers and, you know, as a startup ourselves, but at the end of the day, what we say is people work with people, right? And it's that continuous relationship building, right? With your existing board members and or observers, but also surrounding in the firm. So I think, you know, the approach there. And of course, no startup wants to get orphaned, but uh, let's maybe jump back very, very quickly on, again, you know, if I look at, Big Health, and again, I'm focusing in on sort of your DTX investments, Big Health and Quid Genius. Of course, the founders and the founding team are operating and they're discovering the models, but did you guys have any kind of a business thesis for DTX through that in the internal discussions, given the fact that you have consumer play, you have robotics, you have others. So just curious to hear your thinking on that and how it evolved. 
Yeah, well, I think the piece around evolution is probably key in that when we first invested in big health, DTX was something where there were strong claims that actually digital solutions were superior in some ways to more traditional clinical approaches. And I think especially in the last couple of years that the amount of data being generated in kind of robust and reliable studies, not just in kind of addiction using CBT or like insomnia or like broader behavioral change and whether that's menopause or uh, kind of gastrointestinal stuff, like the breadth of data there is impressive. And so I would say that phase one of DTX was showing that you can actually drive clinically significant outcomes. And that I think is done. Like there is broad acceptance of that. I think stage two for me is, and I think we're in the midst of that now, is around distribution and access in that if you take, I suppose, behavioral change driven by DTX businesses in weight loss and some areas there or kind of diabetes management, by actually having a coach, a human coach in the loop, that anchors you to quite a specific price, which means that for a lot of buyers, especially in the UK, getting their head around kind of £100 a year subscriptions for an individual to go through a, a Noom or a Second Nature or something similar to that can be quite a lot to stomach. So I think one area that we're seeing quite a lot of interest at the moment within DTX is how can you turn this into a population health tool that can be prescribed en masse? We're seeing businesses that could actually charge kind of a dollar a year per patient. It will be a paired back service maybe to what consumers expect today. But it's I see that as the next stage of DTX of how you can actually make the unit economics and health economics work outside of selling into large employer budgets. Um, I think the other part that we talk a lot about internally is actually the difference between vertical specific DTX businesses and horizontal plays in that if you look at the efficacy data of a big health or a quick genius who go narrow and deep and specialize, that is quite different to broader DTX businesses where they have suites of, of products in quite different areas. And so I think there is a consumer challenge of how do you get the best of both of those worlds? And who is it that will stitch together each of these individual kind of DTXs? In the, like I kind of use the term of a cartridge. Like is there a way of a cartridge with multiple DTX prescriptions that can kind of slot into there? Because there is also a world in which your data from... Noom and understanding how you operate and what your retention looks like and where maybe you need nudges or more support, that learning is directly transferable and translatable into a big health or a quick genius or live longer or whatever. So I think we'll see this kind of infrastructure more and more be invested in of how can you actually plug together what can otherwise be quite siloed products. And I see that as, as potentially quite an exciting step forward as the whole field evolves. So it's interesting, you touched on health coaches as an example. And one of my questions always is, you know, where do you see the humans in a lot of this? Because one would argue that the people that know, so for example, they want to quit smoking, they will try their best and they will use these, you know, CBT and quit genius types of tools to actually help themselves and self-help. Others 
need quite a push, right? And therefore, you know, interacting with human beings does help, right? And we've seen some studies around even like in health coaching, augmenting digital technologies and others. Where is your head on all of this? And if it's a spectrum, and again, big health is going through the employer route and the consumer more or less, right? Even though they clinically validate. Same thing with Quit Genius, to my understanding. So short question, human beings in all of this with digital technologies in the middle of it. I think we would never be able to get our head around a business that operated in this space and wanted to be taken seriously as a medical business if they didn't have the medical piece in the DNA and whether that is how they conceive of the product, how they then ensure they're hitting on the suitable outcomes, the governance piece. You, you kind of have to have that medical DNA in any of these businesses. It's quite interesting of what format does that have to take? And I think there's so many different examples that have shown that you can't be too prescriptive about it. And so something like Quit Genius, who uses health coaches, but also has an impressive group of academics and advisors that help on the research side. So they span the whole gamut, really, of medical professionals involved in some way or other. But I think the digital slash in-person slash human bit is especially interesting when you're dealing with areas of health that may be highly stigmatized. And so with Quit Genius, as we look to kind of push further into opioid addiction, that will be quite a different puzzle in terms of how you can engage users compared to the messaging and the hook to how you engage talking about smoking, just because it is so much more stigmatized. But actually there, the opportunity to have the advantage of speaking with specialists, and whether that's doctors or coaches, but in a more anonymized and distant way, like we're kind of hopeful that that could be a really special recipe of how you can actually break down barriers in, in some of these areas where actually seeking in-person support or going to actually speak to your employer is just really challenging. So I think especially within some taboo areas of health, that digital piece, but without the trade-off of losing professional expertise is quite an interesting combination. You know, you mentioned earlier around the concept that Peter had early on as a hypothesis that you can actually treat without the pills. And again, I know some of the investments that you guys have, like MediSafe or Antidote, are actually working with pharma. I just want to understand a little bit where your guys' hypothesis is. And I keep referring kind of over and over in every episode, does DTX swallow that pill? Because if you think about what big health does, they know the end consumer, they know what that experience is like. And while they're going to attempt to treat insomnia in certain case or anxiety in another case, there might be a pill involved as part of that. Or as Peter grows and you know generates significant revenues, and then the pharma says, hey, this is a great you know add-on and another modality. So where's your head? One swallows the other. Yes, it's a great question. Well, I would say that if you really strip back pharma, it is about delivering best-in-class medical treatments. And I think where a lot of DTX businesses have shown is that they can deliver best-in-class medical treatments. So clearly pharma has to do something here. And you could imagine that with the right business and the right strategy, that the pharma could really supercharge distribution. And distribution for the DTX businesses isn't always straightforward. So I think 
there's the potential for something to be done there. But I think it's probably quite hard to generalize in that I spent a lot of time recently looking at businesses operating within the menopause space. And there's quite a lot to suggest the use of CBT for managing symptoms. Whereas if you took a pharma only approach, they're probably very happy continuing to prescribe hormone replacement therapy. So you can imagine in some areas where there is a conflict or cannibalization of pharma revenues if they went down a digital only route. Whereas there's other areas within pharma where companion diagnostics or using advanced tests to be able to hone in on what the right therapeutic is, is far more established. Like you look at exact sciences within oncology. And so I think pharma is definitely waking up and becoming more interested about how they build direct relationships with their customers and how they can have those conversations because like relying on an instruction piece of paper in a box is a hard basis to build a relationship from. Um, but, but I think as through we've seen with MediSafe, there's more and more interest in digital options there for MediSafe. It's around increasing drug adherence, which is an easy step for pharma. Like there's no downside there, but I'm hoping that as they take more and more steps, whether it's from adherence to how they manage and engage and run clinical trials, that all of this is definitely increasing their level of literacy and open-mindedness around what a, a digital solution could bring. I think it'll be really interesting. And we've seen some kind of DTX businesses that have really focused heavily on kind of regulatory, such whether it's like Pear or someone like that, really investing heavily in the FDA clearance or other businesses really going hard after the pharma accreditation. Yeah, I expect it will vary from geography to geography, but also clinical area to clinical area. Thank you, Will. And, you know, as we've been tracking, kind of spec tracking, let's call it that, I guess, you know, the question for you, are you guys looking at SPACs? I mean, just in US alone, I saw a tweet, something like 58 SPACs with no targets whatsoever, but obviously, you know, there's room to maneuver. So that's one piece of that. And I guess at the same time, if you look at, you know, Hinge and the valuation or even the Livango sale with X number of population covered, are we in a bubble and is that bubble going to bubble through the SPAC? So I'm just curious and more of the financial thinking that you guys have around this from a liquidity and exit perspective. Just taking the valuations of bubble one first, like if you actually look at Livongo's year on year growth, it's pretty phenomenal to continue to grow at 100% year on year, even when you're kind of talking some revenue numbers. So but do, do I think DTX businesses are valued kind of highly? Yes, I think the same for Hinge, but I think the underlying fundamentals of those businesses are exciting. And so I'm not worried by those. Um, but I think it's definitely something to, to keep an eye on. I think to, to the point about SPAC, so we haven't had any portfolio companies that have been through a SPAC yet. We've got a few conversations kind of with different boards of portfolio companies, more just taking a maybe a slightly more opportunist view of like, should we, like, what is our, our policy? Because it's too big a, a kind of scene to completely dismiss. And so I've been on some quite interesting discussions with lawyers and advisors, just because I think a lot of people are trying to get up the curve quickly here of, okay, like, what does this actually mean to us? And what are we getting ourselves involved in? So I'm watching with 
heightened interest, albeit I haven't had the conviction yet to press the button. Yeah, I just, you know, I saw some notes that even Deutsche Bank said on the, on I'll say our side of the pond, the SPAC pipeline looking healthy, whatever that means, but, you know, I'm sure opportunities are there. And then finally, you know, we started with you, what kind of brought you here, but I also want to find out what actually gets you up every morning. What's your why? My why is probably linked most to the building bit. I had the privilege to work with some incredible founders in some very broad areas within health. And typically, I gravitate towards the less glamorous areas of health. Uh, and so that's menopause, acne, substance addiction, oncology. And so I think for me, like building stuff in areas where people are surprised when you build to very significant scale is personally very satisfying, as well as it's quite I find it quite satisfying where these are markets that people have just ignored for so long. And then when you come back a few years later and rub it in their face of like, okay, we've, we've scaled a billion dollar business in an area where you couldn't even kind of stomach discussing the topic is cool. So I think the the building bit, but the taboo bit and surprising people about the potential in some of what would otherwise be thought of as niches is powerful. Awesome. Well, thank you for your wisdom and thank you for making the time, Will. And we'll be looking forward to your next investments in this space and elsewhere. Thanks so much for tuning into Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to hit that subscribe button to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're then automatically notified when we post our upcoming episodes where I speak with dozens of leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Brian Dolan's Exit and Outcomes, you can always find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. You can connect with me personally on Twitter at HealthEugene or follow my journey of writing my first book, Heart Pill to Swallow, at heartpilltoswallow.substack.com. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.